This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Thank you so much for listening today. A really interesting episode I've been preparing for the last couple of weeks today. And it's specifically about toxic culture and whether we can change it. And I've I've taken a sort of knotty issue to consider. So Firstly, why toxic culture? There was uh, some really interesting research that's just gone out in today's newsletter, which was looking at a piece of a really fascinating piece of work that was published in MIT Sloan Review, which looked at one of the reasons why so many people were quitting their jobs right now. Really intriguing. I've linked to it in this week's newsletter, and you can see the newsletter in the show notes today. Um, and it looked it looked at the context of people quitting in the midst of this great resignation, this moment we're in right now. Anyway, they evaluated the reasons. Reason number 16, the 16th biggest reason why people were quitting was pay. And what the people who ran the research did is they said, okay, let's benchmark pay as the index. So that was one, that increases one. The uh, scoring 10, so 10 times more important, as a reason for people to quit their job was toxic corporate culture. So really intriguing research. You'll see all of that laid out in the newsletter today. And so free newsletter, by the way. And and so I was really intrigued in the, the impact that we have. And secondly, can we change culture? Now, I hope you'll understand the reason why I've chosen this organisation is that I think they're so demonstrably in the news. So I've chosen the Met Police and my intention today was to pick the brains of a couple of experts in policing and a couple of experts in how police create cultures to really see firstly whether there's an application for this in the rest of work and also just to go through a consideration about what creates a workplace culture. I think anyone who's interested in in workplace culture can get some real value for this. For me, it was pretty clear what the takeaways were. I've put them in the show notes and I've I come back at the end of the episode to discuss them. So it, it's, it might feel like, well, why is this relevant to me, a discussion about police? But I think actually it goes to the heart of what workplace culture discussions really are. So I've got two guests today. First one is Dr. Megan O'Neill. She's an Associate Director at the Scottish Institute for Policing Research. Uh, she's based in Dundee. And then Secondly, I'm going to be talking to Simon Holdaway. And Simon Holdaway is Professor Emeritus of Criminology and Sociology at the University of Sheffield 
used to be a policeman, used to be a police sergeant. So he's got direct application, but he spent a lot of time thinking about these things. Now, there's a whole load of detail in the show notes about some of the things, some of the reasons why the Met Police is in this difficult issue at the moment. Specifically, you'll know there's been some things that have gone over the course of the the last few years that have put the Met under a a lot of scrutiny, and rightfully so. Most recently, I think in the the course of the the last 12 months, or just over 12 months, there's been the murder of a young woman by a serving police officer. When protests were enacted about that, about a Met police officer killing a woman and raping a woman, uh, effectively pretending that he was on duty. When that happened, the the protests were closed down. It turned out in court last week, they were closed down illegally. But certainly the context at the time was that there were a whole load of mainly men going down to protest outside of Parliament in London every week about COVID restrictions. And they weren't policed with anywhere near the ferocity that those young women were closed down by police. So that firstly gave a really bad context. But then there's been the succession of things that are sometimes styled as canteen culture. In January this year, a report from the Independent Office for Police Conduct found, quote, shocking evidence of a profoundly sick force, um, including, quote, disturbing texts between service serving officers that were justified as banter. And this included, well, news stories along these lines have included police officers sharing photos of murder victims with satirical comments attached to them or in the Charing Cross case there were just a whole load of unsavory things people police officers saying that they would rehitnal someone that they would rape a, a colleague and actually what came out from that report is that while only two of them were fired others were promoted so there were really difficult horrible contexts i think that have made other people from the outside say there's something wrong with this organization I think, you know, it's it's worth putting out in context that this isn't me freelancing and giving my opinion. The Daily Mail came out and said that police leaders face tough questions for failing to eradicate a vile microclimate. So, you know, these things are being seen from, from wide places. That's why I wanted to understand, firstly, what does a toxic culture look like and how can you address it? Firstly, let me go into my discussion with Dr. Megan O'Neill. Now, Megan has written... Uh, extensively about stop and search. She's done a lot of work with police. You'll hear me ask both of the interview subjects um, a specific question about something I'd witnessed in Birmingham. And it wasn't my intention really to to sort of get into specifics, but as you'll get into the, the whole discussion, there's clearly themes about underlying prejudice, you know, whether it's sexist or whether it's racist in the police and and really just pursuing those things. Um, So I ask about an episode of policing that I witnessed in Birmingham. And just to fill in the details, so I was at a gig for the rapper Dave. Very decidedly not a dangerous crowd at all. You know, really sort of polite. He's basically a poet, right? He's like... It's not like he's someone who invites aggression in his audience. But uh, the all-white police had sniffer dogs right at the start, and the crowd was probably 60% black. It was certainly mixed mixed race gig. The week after, I saw Disclosure, albeit in London, and there were no police. Now, you need to be really clear that policing of drugs is a race, racial issue. And, you know, the, the reason why is because in... 
public surveys when people are asked whether they take drugs. 9% of white people report taking drugs last year compared to 4.7% of black people. So the incidence of drug taking is twice as high amongst white people as black people, but black people are nine times more likely than white people to be stopped and searched. So, you know, the multiple of that is, you know, per thousand population uh, the the rate of black people being stopped is 19 per, per thousand and the rate of white people being stopped is 2.1 per thousand i'll put all those those notes are all in the those figures are all in the show notes but policing of of drugs is a racial issue and it was just very visibly the case it was like this beautiful well-dressed crowd in birmingham and these sniffer dogs there and some white policeman in his 40s has decided that this is the way that he's going to make a statement and it just it's really strange how these impacts so, so that's the specific incident that i'm talking about there you're also going to get a sense. Um, actually, Simon in the second interview is very straight talking, but very evidence led. He's he's so sharp on detail. I thought at one stage he was saying something about police racism that was opposite to what he's saying. But what he's he was specifically saying. So stick with what he's saying. What he's specifically saying is you should never accuse someone of something until you know specifically what you're alleging. So you shouldn't say. An organisation is institutionally racist until you've defined what that means. And I think that's the specific take, because actually when you get to hear his, his opinions, they're really robust and clear. Anyway, let's get into it. First, let's talk to Dr Megan O'Neill, Associate Director for the Scottish Institute of Policing Research in Dundee. Thanks so much for joining me, Megan. I wonder if to kick off, if you could just say a few words introducing who you are and what you do. Yes. So I'm Megan O'Neill. I'm a reader in social sciences at the University of Dundee. And I'm also an associate director of the Scottish Institute for Policing Research. So my work is very much focused on policing, occupational cultures, community policing. So not only doing research on the police and how they do their work, but then also working with police organizations to improve their practice and to help ensure that the work that they're doing is informed by what we know in terms of the academic literature on on policing and, and what works best in what situations. This is why I wanted to talk to you because you've got this adjacency that you you study the area, but you've also worked work with policing organisations. So incredibly powerful for me. Looking from the outside at the Met Police, it seems to be this ongoing cultural issue. You know, it, they're constantly in the news for missteps or for decisions that seem maybe a little tinnered at times it seems to be a cultural issue if, if you were to summarize the situation right now what, what would you say their culture is and what do you think the challenge facing the Met Police is right now? Yeah I do think culture is part of it and I think when it comes to the policing landscape in the UK the Metropolitan Police do kind of stand out as an outlier you know they're one of the oldest they have the biggest and you know so there is quite a long history there with policing and the Met however I, there are some elements of policing that do make it unique in the world of work. So, I mean, for example, the police turning up at your door, that tends not to be because it's been a good day. You know, the police do tend to see sort of the, the worst aspects of the social world, unfortunately. They work in an environment where they have to respond very, very quickly to situations. Situations could come up all of a sudden. This encourages a tendency towards 
very fast judgments, which can, which is part of their job. They have to act quickly, but it can lead to stereotyping, you know, just running into a situation, having to assess who's doing what. Putting people into boxes is actually part of the function of doing policing. It's also quite a hierarchical organization, and the Met is the most hierarchical of all the police agencies because it's so massive. So this structure is very much focused on sort of a command and control structure. So there's not a lot of free thinking that goes on, especially in the, the lower levels of the organization. So that creates a particular culture in itself. And lately, you know, since 2010, policing in England and Wales has lost 20,000 police officers. So in recent years, you know, the government has been trying to bring back some of those officers slowly, but it, it is coming back. But that kind of a loss takes a toll. So policing in recent years has been under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress to do more, but with less resource. And I should also mention that police community support officers were also lost. We lost about 40% of those, and they are not being replaced in the current recruitment drive for policing in England and Wales. So one thing we do have to keep in mind is policing has some unique pressures and in terms of recent years has had some pressures that weren't there sort of in the you know the late 90s early 2000s right the officers that aren't being replaced they're generally or the police support who are being replaced they're generally office workers is that right so so they used to be an, another policeman told me that it used to be 50-50 office workers and police and that ratio has now been broken is, does that mean there's more officers on on the street but fewer in back at the the office is that right well no there's actually kind of three things going on there so we have you know police constables so that yes they are slowly being replaced police community support officers so they are members of support staff but they are the ones who who wear a uniform and go out on patrol they don't have the power of arrest and they can be made redundant unlike police officers which is why we've lost 40% of them so their job is more the face to face community engagement side of things more sort of the slow policing addressing things like antisocial behavior so because we have lost that additional resource to such an extent i mean they're not all gone but some police forces like i think norfolk it was one of them has gotten rid of the role completely so police officers don't have that additional support to do the more community engagement side of things. So their workload's gone up. And then you also have um, support staff who work in offices. And yes, again, with austerity pressures, there'll be fewer of those as well. So it's the, the organization has been hit on multiple fronts. There's been a series of episodes that have sort of brought the Met Police's culture into the spotlight. Not least the the murder of Sarah Everard by a police officer, but also the handling of the protests against that murder. You remember at the time, a lot of women protesters were manhandled and and were were moved away right in the midst of of the the COVID, the height of COVID. They were sort of dragged away while adjacently in sort of almost the the next day, anti lockdown protests didn't appear to get the same treatment. And additionally, there's been big news stories recently, stories about WhatsApp group culture. You often hear description of canteen culture, which seems to be, as far as I can see it from the outside, this quite machismo-filled banter-style interaction. And there's a succession of these things. Quite often, it's difficult to determine, specifically, say, with the Sarah Everard protests, how much this is a cultural issue and how much this is leadership decisions. That issue in particular seems like it's a leadership decision rather than a cultural issue. How would you define the cultural issues that are being handled at the moment? Do you, do you think these specific episodes, apart from those that really indicate 
something like a canteen culture and, and what is that canteen culture yeah it's it's difficult i mean it, there's there's i mean first things to say is that i mean there's there's no excuse for any of these things that have happened and that have caused people so much distress and harm one thing to keep in mind is is to take the long view and some of these things we have seen before and not just in the metropolitan police but in, in other policing organizations as well and that speaks to a particular orientation when it comes to policing and so some of that will be down to leadership and some of it is you know part of the culture of policing but you know in a way those those two things are, are linked if we th- cast our minds back to the the 1980s, you know, we had you know the Brixton riots, and there was the Scarman report in 1981, who investigated what the role that policing had in bringing those about. Scarman identified what he called a few bad apples in the police barrel that there were individual officers who caused a problem and they should be rooted out. That language that we are seeing again in light of recent events. But what we have to keep in mind is then subsequently we had the investigation into Stephen Lawrence's murder by McPherson in 1999, and that highlighted instead institutional racism. And that's a very different approach from saying we have a few bad apples. Institutional racism puts the emphasis on the organization itself and how it runs, the role of leadership in that, you know, sort of the tone that's set in terms of this is how we do things. So I think leadership and culture are intrinsically linked. And the problems we're seeing in the Met are not new. And, you know, there's a long history in policing research around sexism and machismo in, in policing that it's a very, it sees itself as a very action-oriented job, uh, although there's also recent research about how much time police spend not doing anything and just kind of standing around, So, the which is, again, part of policing. So it, it's presented as being this sort of macho action-oriented occupation, and that makes can make things difficult for women. So these things we're seeing right now are not new. It is difficult to change culture and policing, but it's not impossible. And we have seen some areas where that can and has happened. One thing I would point to is the importance of creating the right kind of environment for officers to feel like they are being listened to by their managers, that they have an opportunity to to talk about what they're experiencing, to reflect on their experiences, and to be heard. And, and this points to... Um, something that came out of my work with Police Scotland and Stop and Search around what, what's called organizational justice. And it's it's a really important concept when we think about how we might encourage a different kind of culture in policing and encourage officers to be more aware of things like human rights and the, and the values held by the organization. So if the idea here is that leaders and organizations create an environment where there's better communication, you know, up and down throughout the management structure and that people in the lower levels understand what's happening around them, that if change is coming, they have a chance to talk about it and that they feel valued. And as I was talking earlier about the Met, with it being such a hierarchical organization, that's really difficult to do in policing. That would require a very different framing to how police officers are managed and policing is handled. So it's not impossible. There was, there's been some work in Durham Police using a model of organizational justice and the the result was that those officers embraced the values of the organization more, were more in tune of human rights, and because they were being treated better as employees, they were better police officers at the end of it. That's that's fascinating. I chatted um, maybe two or three years ago now to the former chief constable of Lancashire Police, Andy Rhodes, and Andy Rhodes 
really sort of highlighted something that I think you've touched at there, where, you know, if an officer is going to do a good job, there there needs to be a degree of psychological safety. If they turn up at a flashpoint at maybe a big estate somewhere, and by the nature of the job, there's going to be a moment of conflict if they go and stage an arrest or stage an intervention. And they need to know if they're behaving with integrity, that the psychological safety, they're going to be trusted that if something goes wrong, the organization's going to give them support. Simultaneously, the very fact that they're turning up at a certain estate all of the time, there does, by the very nature of things, there starts to be a degree of profiling, of, of class profiling, of ethnic profiling. Uh, you know, they expect to see a certain thing. And so they behave in a certain way by a degree of almost human pattern recognition that you almost want to get rid of, but it's a very difficult thing when people are in stressful situations. And what you described there is, I think, a way to try to manage those things. So can you explain a little bit more about the model you you suggested? Forgive me, I forget the name that you use for it. But because this specifically, the, the work that you've done and you've helped study as well with Stop and Search in Scotland has won international praise. And it seems to be something in particular that might be a valuable lesson when it comes to the Met. I wonder if you could go into those things at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's the concept is organizational justice. Um, in, in policing at the moment, there's a lot of talk about procedural justice, that when a an officer encounters someone in, you know, again, a face-to-face encounter, that if that encounter goes well, where the person that the police officer is, is talking to feels that they've been listened to, they've had a chance to express their views, and that the outcome is is reasonable, then they are, that encounter is more likely to go well and the police are more likely to have the trust and confidence of the community. Even if it means that that person ends up being arrested, if that procedure goes well, then overall the outcome is much better. Procedural justice is an element of organizational justice. So the idea is it doesn't just apply to policing on the street with the community. It applies within the organization itself. There's different elements to it. The basic point is if employees feel that the organization follows its own rules, that all the procedures happen the way they're supposed to, that employees feel like they're listened to, that there's good communication throughout the organization. So if something's going to change, that that's communicated effectively, that people's opinions are sought and listened to and acted on, and then that resources are given out fairly within the organization. So both in terms of, you know, what people have to work with, but also, you know, rewards and punishment, that all that's done fairly. The idea being to encourage police managers to work towards a model of organizational justice. As we're saying, with policing, this is difficult because the traditional model is quite militaristic. It's quite hierarchical. It's, this is what we're doing go do it. So to change that takes a real concerted effort and it takes a coordinated approach across the organization. Now, the reason this came up in Scotland is Scotland research by who was someone who then was a PhD student, Kath Murray, showed that stop and search in Scotland was off the scale. It was something like seven times as high as what was going on in the London Met for rates of stop and search. And part of that was because in Scotland, you you could ask someone's permission to stop them without legal grounds. Suspicionless stop and search. That's now illegal. They can't do that anymore. But anyway, at the time, so they, they could do these um, consensual that's it, stops. And so they were off. There were a huge number of stop and search. So the police felt that this was an important way to keep people safe, even though all the research said you're not likely to find anything. All you're likely to do is annoy people. 
and it's 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 making situations actually worse. So to try to move the police away from using stop and search quite so much, they ended up completely changing how stop and search is conducted. There's now a code of practice. Consensual searches are no longer legal. It was a huge change. And the organization, because it was under so much pressure in Scotland, had to do it very, very quickly. So this was enacted within a matter of a few months. They were completely changing how they did everything in relation to stop and search. So while the change has been effective in that the rates of stop and search are have plummeted, they're around like a tenth of what they used to be. They're much more accurate in terms of actually finding something when someone is searched, you know, more so than it was the case before. Officers themselves were not consulted in that process. It, it was more a case of we're going to have to change. This is what we're doing. And that has caused a lot of ill feeling internally when these big changes came across. So while we can see the numbers have dropped, what we don't know is the extent to which that's because officers feel like, as you were saying earlier, I, I'm going to get in trouble if I do this wrong. Um, nobody has my back. And so might be avoiding doing stops because they don't feel like that have that organizational support. So organizational justice came out as something that was missing in, in the stop and search story for Police Scotland. And it's something that my colleagues and I have highlighted going forward in terms of for you know other organizations who are looking to change, who are looking to make you know a big difference in their policing and how they operate need to start from a position of organizational justice, of we're going to listen to our officers, we're going to make sure they feel supported, that they're being treated fairly, and that you know we have good communication across the piece. Now, that raises a really interesting th- theme there, because I guess what you're saying there is the stop and so- search story might be suiting the customers, do you call them customers, of the police well? The, like the, the people that they're stopping and searching might be saying, okay, there seems to be profiling going on now. We seem to be less st- being stopped less at random. But you're saying to some extent the police themselves, the police officers themselves might think this policy doesn't work or, it, you know, it doesn't reflect our capabilities and needs. And it just strikes me then we're getting on to the makeup of the organisation because one of the things that is seeming to undermine the reputation of the Met Police right now is that these constant stories about police sharing things on WhatsApp, so photographs from crime scenes or comments about the victims of crime, so, you know, murder victims, photographs are shared on WhatsApp groups, which are firstly reprehensibly immoral, um, but secondly, appears to be showing a lack of compassion when it comes to certain groups and it seems to be all of these things are reflections then of this canteen culture now would you thinking holistically say that as well as organizational justice and you know making sure the police felt listened to is there a process which has to be okay before we build new cultural norms, we also really need to expunge the organization of either toxic behaviors or toxic individuals. How do you get rid of the toxicity that seems to be the undercurrent that is there at the moment? Yeah, no, it's a really important question. And it comes back to that that question of the Lord's Garment approach, of we have lots of bad apples, to the McPherson approach of it's an institutional problem. One thing to say is that you know, there, there is no excuse for that kind of behavior. And for, you know, for officers who are doing those sorts of things that, you know, there does need to be an appropriate response and to that. But we also need to understand where that's coming from. And policing is an extremely difficult job. It is extremely stressful. Um, police officers will see 
events that will, for some may haunt them for the rest of their lives. It's a, it is a difficult job. There are various coping mechanisms to that kind of stress. And often one of the, one of the joys about doing so much work with the police is that the police can be really funny because humor is a very frequent coping mechanism. Going out and, and doing patrol in a car, actually, you know, I, my, my sides might be hurting from laughing so much sometimes because the humor is a really important coping mechanism. It's when it tips into that extremely inappropriate types of humor, as, as we've seen in recent events, that's, of course, when it becomes problematic. So the issue here is, in these particular cases, how are police officers dealing with the stress of their job? Why are they in those stressful positions in the first place, do they not feel they have other outlets to deal with that stress, to explore why that's happening and why they're feeling the way they are? So that's where the organizational side of things comes into it, in that if the organization is not providing them with appropriate outlets to to deal with their stress and to feel that they can be open and honest about how they're feeling, that's the problem with the organization. That's where the institutional side of it comes in. And there is a lot of work now going on in terms of mental health and policing and, and helping police officers to feel that it's okay to talk about being depressed or, to, or, or being very stressed and to have ways to be supported. I don't think that's quite mainstream yet throughout policing. So there is still work there to help bring that sense of you are supported. We do have your back and, and we can help you when you're experiencing difficulties. Really interesting. You mentioned the sort of the, the humor aspect of it. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I think that's possibly not seen from the outside. And I guess there might be a danger of, you know, thinking about that, that the, the humor creates this really strong in-group feeling that the police themselves feel, you know, they're, they're look, they're exposed to grimness, I suspect, in a year that most of us wouldn't see in a lifetime. So, you know, the the ability to cope with that. I remember chatting to a fire officer and I said to him, uh, I, I asked him about the humour that they had there. And I said, oh, is this the sort of thing that you could go home and tell your partner about? He said, if I told my wife what we joked about at work, um, she would never want to speak to me again. And, you know, I suspect, like you said there, it's about... The humor gets you through what might be traumatic, might be might leave a sort of residual scar. The humor ha- helps you cope with it. Um, the, the, just the question for me is, you know, how you would seek to celebrate the strength that that gives the organization without it having this such strong in-group effect that it almost alienates them from the outside world. You know, I remember I've worked in organizations where the rule was if you do something and if it was to appear on the front of the Times, if other people were to look at it, they wouldn't be horrified. Never do something that if it landed up on the main item at the nine o'clock news that would bring shame on the organization. And some of the behavior in these WhatsApp groups, some of the behavior in the, the sort of the locker room discussions that seem to be happening there seem to cross that line. How do you keep the strength that you described without it going into these inappropriate areas? That, that seems to be like this gray area, really. Yeah, no, and, and that's, that's a tricky one because, you know, absolutely because of 
the, the stress and the unpredictability of the role, being able to have a, a tight bond with your colleagues and to feel like, you know, you will be supported if you get into a difficult situation. That is very, very important in policing. But I mean, as you say, if it starts to, to tip over into a more sort of toxic environment, that is problematic. So there is definitely a role there in terms of not only feeling supported in, in your close group, but also feeling supported, you know, from your manager and your manager feeling supported by their manager. And, you know, that, that the entire orientation of this organization is that we are in this together. We know that people make mistakes and we are here to, to help you and support you. A lot of policing is much more about this is the rule and this is what you have to do and you're going to have to follow it. You, you can understand why, because, you know, the police have the power to take away people's liberty. You need to have officers who are responsible with the power and the authority that they have. However, if it becomes so much so that they don't feel that the upper levels will listen to them or take their side, then that can encourage that more kind of toxic and problematic coping styles um, that I was referring to. And you mentioned human rights approach, or you, you've, you've mentioned a sort of reframing of issues. Presumably, that's to overcome some of the challenges of racial profiling or some of the the aspects that might come into the job. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to be one of the themes that has really helped with the work that you've done in Stop and Search in Scotland and might be very relevant to the the Met. So what does that look like? That came out of the the research that was done in in Durham Police around um, organisational justice. And what that pointed out was that if officers feel that they are supported by their organization and they are listened to by their superior officers, they are more likely to support the values of of the policing organization. And then knock-on effect from that is they're more likely to embrace human rights and to see the people that they encounter in their day-to-day work, you know, as, as humans with rights that, you know, just because that person over there looks a little bit funny doesn't mean I have the right to go over there and start talking to them. Um, One thing that came out of the stop and search work in Scotland was that police interacting with young people, even if it is just walking up and saying hello and you got anything in your pockets, that can leave a legacy with that young person. And so young people who have encounters with the police are more likely to have further relationships with the criminal justice system. So even just an informal conversation with somebody has an effect, has an impact on them. You're stopping them from their right of, you know, of moving freely in space. Having police officers who feel that they are well supported by their organization, that they um, have the kind of outlets that they need, are more likely to support the human rights of other people that they encounter in the street. And so and to, to say, okay, right, well, I don't actually have grounds to stop that person I'll let them go on their way. And so it's just those little things, you know, that creating a different kind of mindset can have all these knock-on effects that then makes them better police officers in the long run. Really interesting. I, I was at a gig yesterday and, and there, was, um, there was a police search dog there, a sniffer dog. And, and it struck me, firstly, police sniffer dogs, they, they, as I understand it, they sniff for one thing. So, you know, you don't have a dog that sniffs for 50 different things. They sniff for one thing. So I presume... This was like a rap gig. So I presume that the sniffer dog would probably be searching for weed. The big question for me is, what does it achieve for the police to have a dog sniffing for weed at a concert? I just, For me, it's created this moment of conflict with an audience that they probably need to build bridges with. And it just strikes me as a, as a, a flashpoint that seems unnecessarily adversarial. And presumably then, those decisions go to the heart of 
how the police might change a culture going forwards. They, they go to the heart of that, that um, thinking about the rights of the individual. Is that right? How would you think about those themes? Yeah, no, that that's interesting. And so that particular example, that would probably be a decision that was made at a more senior level that, you know, this is how we're going to police this gig. Um, and so someone in a position of authority decided, you know, we need to have sniffer dogs. Um, other other managers or other officers in that level might not have taken that same decision. And there is a lot in policing that is discretionary where the police can decide, you know, is it really worth it for me to do X? You know, is it really worth it for us to have a big police presence at this particular gig? Because as you say, that creates a particular tone. So for example, a lot of my, my first, my early research was on the policing of football. And there's a lot there around the, the appearance of police officers and riot gear and shields and helmets and everything at the start of a match paints a, a particular tone as to what we think is going to happen. And that in itself can contribute towards behavior that might not um, be desirable. So there, there is a lot there in terms of the police being aware of how their choices and actions make other people feel and that sometimes it might be better to use their discretion to not take um, particular actions. And so for me, when what this links into with, with organizational culture is while we need to create the right environment, there's also an element there of rewarding the kind of policing that we find desirable. So at the moment, it's really easy to measure the number of stop and searches people do. It's easy to measure the number of arrests that they do. What's not easy to measure is, you know, the crime that wasn't committed. You can't, it's difficult to measure a community member feeling reassured. That's somebody thinking, actually, I'm not afraid to walk to the shop now because I know that, you know, this environment is, is more secure than it used to be. I think another element in terms of if we want to encourage good policing and respect of human rights, we need to help find ways to reward policing that is is more qualitative in tone, but encourages the kind of policing that we really want to see. And that is a challenge. That is a very, very much a challenge. But I think the more that we reward that kind of behavior, you know, community engagement and working with people, the more that we will see that kind of policing. It really struck me in the middle of the George Floyd protests in the, the US, there were a few moments that reached our social media feeds. And there was one in particular that I remember that a, a police officer found himself in a filmed interaction with a group of protesters. The fact that he'd been deployed to police this event had presented him in an adversarial role. And actually, he said to the protester, you know, look, we're not here against you. And they, I think they ended up marching together. He said, look, you know, we'll march with you. We'll, I'll take the knee with you. We'll march with you. As a means, I think, to try and say, look, it's not us and them. We want to be more on your side. It was like a really interesting framing. And I think we've learned a lot about some progressive movement in the US, about some city police departments and some state police departments have attempted to try to bridge this big gap, this big chasm that's formed between themselves and the people they're policing. Are there any lessons that you think we can draw from the US? To be honest, I'd do it the other way around, um, that I think there's more the US could learn from the UK and our policing style. Although we do have to, to keep in mind that the US is a heavily armed population. So there are a lot of guns in America. The police are armed. So that right there sets a particular tone as well. However, as you were saying, there were lots of examples coming out of the Black Lives Matter protests where police 
realized that coming in, you know, aggressively uh, was really counterproductive, that these were people who who really needed to express their situations and, and their feelings. And so to work with them was much more productive than the other way around. And, you know, there's a lot of, there've been calls in the U.S. to defund policing. For me, I would take the opposite approach and tend to take a lesson from the U.K., where especially in England and Wales, there's actually legislation that stipulates the police have to work in partnership with other agencies. So the police are mandated to work with education services, health services, youth services, and charities, all these sorts of things, that they need to get around the table together and help address community safety and problem solving together. That's not seen very often in the U.S. The U.S. tends to be very siloed in terms of the various organizations, and the police are, are very law enforcement oriented. They don't see themselves as as much as members of the community, as we would see in the UK. So for me, I think instead of defunding the police, the argument here is more about how can we support the police to to be more connected to the other services in a community, to be more a part of the solution to what's going on in a community, rather than reacting to things that are happening in the community on their own. And because all of these issues are very deep-seated, you know, racism in America isn't just about policing. There's so much more there in terms of education and economics and social factors that it's not just the police. So it has to be something that's done together. And you can't do that with fewer funds. That that kind of work takes money rather than, than less money. But it's that kind of collaborative working that we see more of in this country than you do in the U.S., now, I've been incredibly pessimistic about these things. Like You read these headlines, you think this is a succession of errors. The Met itself didn't seem like they were addressing it. Listening to you, it actually sounds like themes that have been considered elsewhere. And like this can be solved. This isn't too big a problem to solve. W- would you be confident that the Met can solve its problem if it, if it acknowledges that it's got this cultural issue? I, I think, you know, the, that's always what they say. The first step of healing is, you know, accepting that you have a problem. So I, I think for me, for the Met, yes, that, I mean, in a way, this kind of touches on our, the experiences I had in, in Scotland, where Police Scotland were very, very firm in the view that stopping and searching people in volume kept people safe. And it took a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of political pressure to change that mindset and for them to say, okay, you're right. Actually, this isn't achieving what we wanted it to achieve. We're going to change. So for the, the Met, as I say, has been in existence for a very long time. It has a very particular historical and cultural profile. To change it will be difficult, but no, it is not impossible. It's, you know, everything is possible. It's entirely possible. What that would look like, I'm not sure. Maybe the case that to really enact change, we would have to completely change how the Met operates, maybe break it up into two smaller police forces. I don't know. But for me, I don't think it's impossible, but it will require the leadership of the Met to accept that the current way things are done, the current way that the organization is run and managed is not taking it in the direction that the public wants to see. And so things have to change. Yeah. And how would you get rid of this WhatsApp culture, this locker room culture? Would you prohibit it? Would you try and have gentle discussions with people about the norms and acceptabilities? Would it, is it carrot or stick or how would you overcome this? It, it seems to be an undercurrent that you do need to address, but how would you set about changing that? One thing I've certainly learned since becoming a parent is that uh, the minute you say something isn't allowed, that's all the kids want to do. So um, so I think for me, you know, saying what if, if the police were to say, OK, you can't use WhatsApp anymore, it's not going to go away. Right. So I, I've, I think, you know, having that kind of hard nosed approach 
isn't going to work. So it would be more the case of accepting, okay, officers are going to communicate with each other on WhatsApp. Let's try to create an environment that encourages responsible use of that tool. And it can be a really quite powerful tool, you know, if used in the right way. And and this kind of gets back to this, you know, what is the general tone and atmosphere of their working environment? And, and in this case, it might be, you know, related to whistleblowers, that if someone was aware that inappropriate behavior was going on in say in WhatsApp, that that person felt supported to come forward and to express those views and that that wouldn't then have ramifications for the remainder of, of their career. So no, I don't think we can ban it. I think there needs to be a revised approach to what role does it play and and to help people to, to speak out if it doesn't conform to that. I'm so grateful for the time you've taken to talk to me. Anytime on this podcast, I've, I've thought about cultural change. I don't think these an area that's higher stakes than the culture of the police and, and getting the policing right. So, you know, your expertise in the area has been so helpful for us. Thank you so much for talking to me, Megan. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Thank you to Megan. Now, as I mentioned, I'm going to go straight onto a discussion with Simon Holdaway. He's Professor of Criminology Emeritus at the University of Sheffield. Simon, thank you so much for joining me. I wonder if you could kick off by just introducing who you are and what you do. Well, yes, I'm Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Criminology from the University of Sheffield, which in other words means I'm retired, but I don't stop thinking. I have for over 40 years probably nearly 50 years, been studying the police occupational culture. When I was at school, I managed five qualifications which were useless in academic terms, and I left when I was 16. My parents thought, what can they do with this? I was then, you've heard of mods and rockers. I was a mod with a Vespa scooter. So they said, what can we do with him? And they thought, well, it'll, it'll, it'll be all right in the police. They'll make sure he's all right. So I became a little police cadet and went to school at Hendon Police College and then went from there into my first working in the East End of London. Actually, the first day 
I was sworn in as constable. It's important for a, uh, a professor to say this. I ended up in number one court at the Old Bailey, charging mad Frankie Fraser. I don't know whether you've heard of him, but he's a very famous. I happened to run faster than somebody else and caught him shot in the back garden of Smith's Club Catford in a very famous trial. But anyway, that was gang warfare. Uh, that's by and by as far as a- academic work. Hang on. So, so what, you, you, you caught Frankie Fraser that day? Yes, I arrested what? him. My first arrest as an 18-year-old wow. police cadet was a Francis Fraser, a famous, very, very famous gangland criminal. He was the South London equivalent of the craze. But he, he couldn't move. I found him shot in the back garden right. of Smith's Club where there'd been a shootout. Yes. Anyway, there we are. Good. And, and so how did you get from being actually active in the police to being a professor? Yes. Well, um, I, I really had no qualifications, but I became a constable at 19. I passed my promotion exam to sergeant at a ridiculously young age, but I didn't get on a fast track promotion. I, I had to wait to be promoted to sergeant for longer than I'd been in the force already. And I didn't want that. So I did two A-levels by correspondence course. I I got a place at Lancaster University to study. They took a bet on me, went there and got a first class honours. It was wonderful. University changed my life. I love universities for that. It taught me about books, what books are, how to think, how to form an argument, how to research, all of these things which are valuable in whatever area of work you do. I just found it wonderful. So I went back and I was a sergeant in North London and I registered as a PhD student at LSE and I kept a secret diary. And I was like an anthropologist looking at the police as a, as a strange people, documenting their society, if you like. And I was the first person to discover what is now wrongly called police culture. I'm responsible for, I suppose, for people saying uh, whenever they hear the word police, they say, oh, there's a cultural problem there. I discovered in my PhD the police occupational culture. And I managed somehow to get a job as a lecturer in sociology at the University of Sheffield. I wouldn't have got anywhere near the shortlist now, but somehow I managed to get the job and on I went and published Inside the British Police, A Force at Work. And Inside the British Police, The Force at Work was the occupational culture. It wasn't the police as you see them. It was what was lying behind, as it were, the reality of what we see. It's this occupational culture. I published that and various other things, but I've spent most of my life studying police-race relations and its relationship to the police occupational culture. In particular, I've done a number of studies, quite large studies, of ethnic minority police officers. So that's what I've done. I do a bit of consultancy now. Yeah, I'm the person who discovered the police occupational culture. Wow. I wonder if you could do as a service of giving us an appraisal of where you think the Met Police are right now. We we seem to have had this dissonance between Cressida Dick, who seems to have s- suggested a plan of change that hasn't been radical enough. And, and my inclination from the outside is a suspicion that she's probably sided with her employees. She's acted as the the leader of that group. Could you give us an appraisal of what you think the culture is in the Met right now? Well, in some ways, it's in part the same occupational culture that has been there since I completed my study over 30 years ago. And that sounds extraordinarily, but that does tell you about the strength, the resilience of the police occupational culture. I keep It's not an organisational culture. It's an occupational culture. Perhaps we'll come back to that. Okay, you're going to need to elaborate specifically what you see the difference. By occupational culture, I I would presume that this is like deeply embedded in the job, not merely in the organisation. Is that what you think? 
Precisely, precisely. We've got to make distinctions here between the world of policing as chief and senior officers and what I call managerial perspective in policing and those of the, the lower ranks. And these are really quite different. The managerial ranks, chief officers, supervisory officers, form a formal managerial structure. You know the sort of thing, a line of command, a line of, of policy coming down the organisation to influence those who implement it, a bureaucracy with particular rules. Now, that's different from what happens on the streets. I think that's patently clear because there are not policies which say you should stop black people X times more than you should stop white people. I mean, that, 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 that seems to be patent. That should be patently clear to anybody taking a glance at the police. What we've got is police officers performing specific work of a specific type. It's work immediately in contact with the public. It's work that involves the instruments of law and policy with a great degree of discretion to use those two resources, as you will. There are limits, there are boundaries, but, but there's a great deal of discretion how to use them. There is great ambiguity in police work. If you walk down the street outside of your office in the next hour, I ask you to say whether or not anybody who walks towards you or anybody who passes you is somebody who should have the attention of the police. The world is ambiguous when you view it in terms of who is out of place in this place, who might have done this that is of interest to me as a police officer. So there's great ambiguity in routine policing. In light of this and other features, there are two core features of the police occupational culture. Occupational culture, because it is problem solving, the problems specifically found in police work with these characteristics and more. At the core is the idea that the police own the territory they work in. In other words, when a police officer drives a car down the street, he or she is responsible, owns that street. Of course, they don't. And the second related point is that they are the thin line against disorder. So if they don't function properly, then there will be disorder. And of course, that's wrong as well, because there are many, many factors you have to take into account if you're going to try to understand how disorder arises. I mean, it goes all the way down from the from economic and social policy causes disorder of particular types to the particular locality and uh, resources that are available to people in the area they live in. But at the core, we have this firm belief we're in charge and we deal with disorder. If you're going to deal with policing and you're going to change the occupational culture, incidentally, you have to get rid of that view and you have to see that you have to work with schools, social services, many, many other organisations who are concerned with the retention of order. That view of the world is very different from the formal rational view of chief officers, which is that discretion, the use of discretion will be minimal. I can change that world by issuing uh, directives about policy and about how law will be implemented. And I am able to, it's always retrospectively, of course, control aberrant behaviour and change things. So you've got a notion really of formal rationality in the mind's and actions of chief officers, but that formal rationality and the resources it uses always passes through, let's think of it as a lens with different filters in it. And that lens, as a law or a policy comes down to the lens, which is the occupational culture, it's refracted in one direction or another, depending upon how the occupational culture 
helps form the mind of the officer putting something into action. So always law as it is written is not law in practice and policy as it's written is not policy in practice. If you want to understand the police, you have to understand what constitutes this lens through which things are refracted and then you have to understand police on the ground. And is it possible then, you've given me this occupational culture, what comes with the job? That would suggest to me that there's going to be some shared characteristics between policing, probably between people in Manchester, you know, police in, certainly in in urban environments, police in Birmingham, police in Manchester, police in Glasgow, they're going to have some things in common. Beyond that, though, do you think that there's a nuance that the Met has a specific organisational culture that goes a level beyond that? I'm speaking without evidence, and of course, academics never, ever do that, do they? No, I don't think so. The Met, historically, has always been seen as the sort of, it's always has most press attention, the Home Office only just down the road. But I think there are similarities that one can find, you know, in all metropolitan forces. This is a puzzle I haven't yet sorted in my own mind after 30-something years But I don't want to present police constables and sergeants as clones, that they're all the same, just thinking through with this occupational culture. There are subtleties of difference. In some special squads, you find greater emphasis upon this rather than that. In some areas of policing, you find that the occupational culture is not half as strong as it is in other areas. So it's quite complex. There's sort of nodes within this and networks within it, which we have to understand. Of course, None of this comes out in any of the reports. Uh, Louise Casey, for example, Dame Louise Casey was hired by Cressida Dick to undertake a study or or rather a consultancy of police culture in the Met. She won't come out with those sort of views because I'll bet my bottom dollar she doesn't take any time to look at how we define police culture. It's just what people do. So what you seem to be saying is that, you know, we've got this crisis that's drawing attention right now in the Met Police. And, you know, there's a number of flashpoint issues that have arisen from a lack of empathy with female victims of crime or, you know, a culture, a WhatsApp culture, or sometimes called a canteen culture of, it seems, toxic masculinity. There's a strong in-group culture that creates a sense of out-group, meaning that some, some victims aren't treated with even the most cursory respect. What you seem to be saying is that this is more adjacent to some of the themes that have surfaced in the US about defund the police, about like these, the job is in itself broken. It seems to be more adjacent to that than something specific about the Met is broken. It's almost like you're saying, because what you hinted at earlier was that you need more holistic solutions. You need to think about how schools and education authorities, about other probably health services can integrate into this if you're going to solve it. Is that what you're saying? You're saying the job is broken, not the organisation is broken. Uh, well, it's not broken because it's carried on like this for goodness knows how many years. And we, all, we get a police service. It can carry on like this as long as we want it to. So it's not broken. But no, I don't agree that this is the same as American police forces. More recently, we're talking about the Floyd murder, aren't we? And American policing there. American policing is much more aggressive. It's armed policing constantly on the streets. We don't have the same, this is the wrong term, but let me say underclasses of black people and white people in Britain as we do. We don't have ghettos which are separated off completely. I I think a hop over the Atlantic is very difficult if we're going to try and compare police forces 
Also, some American forces, because I don't know, there's over, there's probably a thousand police forces in America. They're very, very small, most of them very local. There will be some forces which are very, very close to their local populations, their local communities, and will be very sensitive to how they deal with victims because they probably know somebody who knows the victim. No, I don't call policing broken because it's carried on like this for too long. I'm interested then because like the challenge that we've seen here is that Cressida de Dick obviously came with a proposal to change things that was seen as not being up to the challenges that was being faced. And so if you were charged with going in and changing the culture of the Met, what would be the actions that you specifically took? And, you know, hearing the fact that you said this occupational culture rather than organisational culture, specific actions, what specific actions do you think would be in your one-year plan, 90-day plan, two-year plan? What, what actions would you take? Well, put the contract on my desk and I'll sign it and I here I come. <laughs> That's a lovely consultancy. Very happy to do it. <laughs> but um, I'll do the one thing that nobody, no consultant, no reviewer of the Metropolitan Police or any other force has done. And this comes from research. I mentioned earlier that the further you get down the rank of command, the more discretion you have. And I mentioned that law as it is written and policy as it is written is not law and policy in practice. The people who we should be calling, let's just call them who are the police, it's constables and their immediate supervisors who are sergeants. And what I would do first and foremost is to provide sergeants with education. So we need to understand something about what race is, what ethnicity is, the lives of black people, and, and they're, they're, you know, but also training as to how to implement the sorts of values and related actions you want police officers, constables to use in their everyday work. In other words, I would first of all deal and support and continue supporting the real leaders in policing. And there's far too much talk about the importance of leadership in organisations. The real leaders are sergeants. So give them the status, give them the skills and the knowledge, be able to talk to their constables in terms of what they want them to do. That's the first thing. And that is really important. And if you ask me, has anybody done that? The answer is no. You ask me what sort of training do sergeants get in some forces, it's completely minimal. Right. And so it strikes me that just joining together the things that you said there, you know, a greater empathy with the people that you're policing, that those sergeants are probably in the same way that actually right now there's a crisis of management in the offices. This, It seems you're saying there's a crisis of management at the sergeant level in the police, and you need to probably think about reforming those people as your first step? Well, it's not a crisis because nobody's identified it. It's not seen as a problem because people don't, leaders think they lead the constabulary. I guess this is the same in corporations. You know, the chief executives think that they, they lead their organisation, whereas in fact it will be others. So what I'm saying is this isn't a crisis because nobody's spotted it. It's not a problem because people don't understand it. And don't ask me why, but part of it is that there's a very strange idea that somehow those who are in the higher ranks have control over the lower ranks and can easily influence what they do. Well, you can't if you know anything about the research. You can set the tone. That's what a, a higher rank leader does. You set the tone. In the area of race relations, I found when I did a study of the recruitment of ethnic minority officers into the police, 
I found the more the chief constable talked about the commitment of the force to equality, the more the policy became embedded. But it could flounder when it got down the ranks because the sergeants didn't really understand what, why this was being said, what they needed to do to put it into practice, and so on and so on. So you set the tone, you, you intervene where the major problems arise. But, but I just come back to who are the real leaders? It's sergeants and inspectors, and they need to be supported with the education, training, and continuing support to help constables change the constabulary. And the constabulary, the occupational culture, will change if that occurs. It won't change if you issue new directives. Actually, I think if you have uh, boards of accountability from outside the police, because they can't see what's going on, they're doing it retrospectively. That's it. And so that would be personnel change at those sergeants level or just training them? Well, (laughs) that raises an important point. Just uh, this week, a very interesting review of policing from uh, an organisation called the Police Foundation has been published. And they're saying that there should be a review every five years of police officers' abilities. And I'm in favour of that. And that that would resonate with what I'm saying, because I think at the moment we don't know which sergeants have the skills and abilities to do this sort of work. So there might be some sorting out to be done there. First of all, let's just focus on sergeants and their importance. From your perspective, do you think this is what the incoming leader of the Met will seek to do? See, I haven't seen anybody say anything about this perspective from the research. Actually, I haven't seen anybody who said anything about the research and then said, well, this is what needs to be done. Unfortunate statements have been made. I've recently been involved in the National Council of Chief Constables is publishing a race relations policy. Some people insist that the new commissioner of the Metropolitan Police must say and accept that the Met is institutionally racist if they're going to be appointed. And then others have said the commissioner must accept that the force is institutionally sexist. I don't know what these people mean by this, but what they actually must mean is that an institution is repetitive action by people. That's by constables and they need to get down to sergeants, but they never say that. What at the moment, we've got a lot of jargon being voiced from outside the force. And I'm not sure that really gets to the heart of things. Of course, we've no idea what Pretty Patel wants. And we've no idea what the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, wants. For me, it's got to be somebody who appreciates the limitations of leadership and works from that basis. Would you be optimistic then that this could be solved? Could be solved, yes. And, and Of course. And you skimmed over the sort of the institutionally racist thing there. Why? Because you think it's not a helpful question? Well, because it's, it's become a catch-all. Right. Every time anybody sees anything that, that is disproportionate in relation to into black people or any other minority ethnic group, they say it's institutional racism. What, what do they mean? That the policies are written to be discriminatory? That the action of police officers... Is, is discriminatory deliberately or unwittingly, as the Lawrence report puts it. I think the force is institutionally racist. I, I use that term, but I see it as repetitive action, repeated action, so that outcomes are disproportionate. I was, um, I've been to a few music things in the last few weeks, and I was at a rap big rap concert in Birmingham. There were police sniffer dogs there. Now, the clientele of this was, I would guess, 60% black. And there were police sniffer dogs there. And I've really? been at big music events, hundreds of big music events in the last few years. But in, I've been at m- big music events populated by white people in the last few months. And there were no sniffer dogs there. And so, yeah, right. well, that's discriminatory. Right. That, is, that is racial discrimination. 
Whether that amounts to whether that amounts to institutionalization of that is a, is another matter. Without doubt, that is racially discriminatory. You've you've given the reason for for, for arguing that case, the evidence that that it's not happens at, when, at uh, music events with white people. Mm. I'm not arguing. I'm not trying to water down uh, racial discrimination and prejudice. On the contrary, <laughs> it's an extremely serious problem. But but no, I just get I just get a bit fed up actually with people throwing concepts around without being the least bit clear about what they mean or what you do about them. I mean, if you think about people who are talking about institutional racism, fine. But what are you going to do about it? How do you tackle it? That means how do you define it? There's a very strong symbolic aspect to policing. Seeing a police car, seeing a police officer somehow enshrines symbolically order, gives people confidence. And you've heard a lot about in London a lack of confidence in the police. So there's a there's a very important symbolic cast to policing. You've got to understand that if you put police officers in various places, then people are, are going to feel more confident. What's happened in London, I think, is that although the police symbolise order, Cressida Dick has come to symbolise disorder and everything that is bad about policing. I've met Cressida Dick in many, many years ago and, and ongoing. I'm not a friend of hers, but, but I, I do know her. And I know that her values are those that you and I would want to hold, actually, many of them. But it was when she became a symbol of all that is wrong was the time that she lost the confidence of everybody. And I think had to resign, actually. Another part of that is that I never heard her talk sufficiently about her plans for change. I mean, I'm not sure if anybody who's listening to this podcast can say, oh, yeah, I know what Cressida Dick was going to do. And I like that bit and didn't agree with that bit. Or it was hopeless. Yes, she's right to, to have to leave. But I just don't think she communicated sufficiently. I talked about police officers, chief constables, the importance of them talking about race and, and their commitment to equality and what they're doing about it in their force. That's an important part of signaling to publics about what they want. But I don't think Cressida Dick did that. All she seemed to do was almost be on the back foot and almost sounding a little bit defensive. And I, and I find that very difficult to understand. Apart from this point, which is that if we go back to the Lawrence report and their definition of institutional racism, there was some research after that amongst a very big sample um, of uh, low-ranked officers. And they thought that the Lawrence report and its definition of institutional racism was saying that they individually are racists. And that has happened this time round as well. Police Federation in Sussex and uh, in London have said, no, our officers are not racists. And so, you know, we're not institutionally. The great danger has been for Cressida Dick. If she accepts the notion of institutional racism, the evidence from research like it or not, is that officers will think she's calling them individually racist and she'll lose them. I mean, they'll feel resentment against her for that. So that might be why she didn't chart her careful course between the people who were critical using the notion of institutional racism and keeping her workforce on board. I mean, Commissioner Lynette is a hugely difficult job, but mind you, don't take it, don't appoint somebody to it if, if they can't do it. I, I just think that. When you see the commissioner of the Met and you hear what they say, you should feel nothing but they have competence, they speak about the values, and then they are doing something at that lower level of supporting the real leaders of the force. There's a kind of 
humility that needs to go with very high rank mm. in the police. Yeah, so so what other values do you think are needed? I think let's let's stick with race. I mean, what we want there is equality. The way a sergeant should act with his or her constables is to check the number of stops which each officer has done, to find out where those stops were taken. What, In other words, to get an analysis of what each officer is doing and to see whether or not it looks like it is discriminatory. And then to have the support, and at the moment it would be a splattering of courage and confidence to say to the officer, look, this is the pattern of what we see when you're stopping people or arresting people. Seems to be some possibility that this is discriminatory. Now, we need to talk about this. We need to have a conversation and discover why you did these stops. That's what I'm talking about. It's almost, it's a formal conversation, but it's a confident conversation, which I hope, <laughs> like this, I hope it's confident, of, of talking to people who actually do things on the street. And it's not a blame game. That's critically important. We're not going to blame you and chuck you out if, if you've made an error. I mean, there are some things, of course. I mean, the Charing Cross case, if you, you know, that terrible WhatsApp thing, they, they've got to go and, and quickly. But if you need some advice, we'll give it to you. Take it. If you don't take it, then you're going to, you know, we're going to step up on you. Right. Right. So it's, it's, I guess it's about asserting what the values are, maybe sort of holding people accountable to, okay, you might not even be aware, here's a pattern of behaviour doing, and then yeah. just holding them accountable to that over time. Every force has a code of ethics. Every single police constabulary has a code of ethics. You can go to that code of ethics and that would form part of the, if you like, uh, sergeant's armoury. And they would be able in their training and education, they would they would be able to put those ethical values into practical examples of police work. And therefore, they'd be able to look at their officers and say, ah, yeah, that's good. That's the way in which the force and public seem to want us to work. Praise, real good stuff. Well, you know, that's good. That's, what, that's the way we want you to police. Others who are not enshrining those values, that's, that's critically important. You mentioned canteen culture. Of course, it's not canteen culture. People use this. It, Talk about canteen culture. It, uh, everything I've talked about is police work on the streets. It's not just talk in the canteen. It's action. It's an occupational culture. But you have to listen to what people are saying in the canteen when you're having a meal. That's where you hear about values and attitudes and beliefs. So a sergeant has got to, you know, just listen. This is not spy-like, but they've got to listen. In the canteen, you will hear the underlife of policing and use that in your supervisory role. It's very hard, this. I mean, I'm just sitting here talking about it. I used to be a sergeant in a London police station, and, and I think, well, how would I manage that? With difficulty, you know, I'd want a lot of support. But I do think you can do this, and I think this is what's required. Wow, it's a fascinating discussion. And look, you know, at, at times these things do feel overwhelming and, and like they can't be changed. But you've given grounds for optimism, I think. To, to They can be changed. They can be changed. Look at the research evidence. Where, where, final question, where... You know, if you looked at the research evidence, where are there examples of police um, forces changing? Well, we're at the end of the interview, and um, I'm going to give you a short answer. There aren't. <laughs> right. Okay. So qualified optimism. It can be done, but it hasn't it been done. It can be done. Yes. Yes. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm so grateful pleasure. for your time. A pleasure. 
Thank you to Megan and Simon. I, I mentioned at the outset I was sort of wanted to come back and sort of talk about applications, and I would love input on this. So feel free to reply to the newsletter or put a comment at the bottom of the newsletter, or just to hit me up with your personal comment if you if you want to contact me. A reply will get you straight to me. So for me, there's some critical parts of this. And firstly, not least, good culture can only exist when this space, when an organisation is overwhelmed, it's got people are overscheduled, they've got no sense of personal control. When there's no space, culture can't exist or it can't thrive. It needs needs space to grow. And as you heard in the, that discussion, something that happens is when there's ongoing cuts in numbers, what you find is that the work intensity for the people who remain means that they don't necessarily get the space to expand into the decisions. I saw this really clearly when I worked in tech firms. The more overscheduled people become, the more that they don't feel that they're able to make the right decision that they want to make, but they, they sort of opt to, to take shortcuts. Second thing is, I think, giving officers a voice. This is a really critical consideration in any culture. It contributes to what Megan talks about, organisational justice. The the organisation needs to feel like people are heard, respected, and they can contribute. Then, finally, I think what Simon really clearly articulates is two things. He articulates the value of middle management for bringing culture to life and holding it and and embodying it. And it's often neglected. We talk about the importance of leadership and he, he explains the, the gaps in leadership that he witnessed. I'm a keen listener to a brilliant podcast called Rock and Roll Politics, Steve Richards. And Steve Richards talks all the time about the importance of leadership. He's telling stories and, and setting out what you want with a, a sort of narrative to it. And and I think what Simon articulates there is, is a leadership void. When you're not telling stories, when you're not articulating what you think the future is going to look like, then there's a, a real gap that lives there. I think to some extent what they're dis- saying is that Cresta Dick tried to have identity leadership where she said, I am one of you, you and I represent you. And the danger of that is that when you're trying to enact cultural change saying i am you we are us it makes it very difficult unless you're explaining the direction of travel it makes it very difficult to actually embody some change a final thing that simon really clearly mentioned was the importance of values and values are a really critical part what you find with any society is that society often starts with rules and rules by their very nature are autocratic, they're controlling, they're prescriptive, and they bridge from rules into values. And values have a benefit to them because they are subject to interpretation. What you find, though, is that if values are going to thrive, they need to be living values that are represented in the stories that people tell, that are represented in the behaviours that we reward. And so I think what Simon really demonstrates is that when there's a void in how you bring those values to life, effectively other behaviours can become the, the equilibrium. You know, if people are seeing a lot of toxic comments in WhatsApp groups, then effectively they find themselves thinking that is our culture here. We're able to do those things. I mentioned right at the outset that there's a whole load of, of episodes that happen like this, and these effectively become the tolerated values of an organisation. 
in the newsletter, I mention I mention a piece of work that says that if a leader of a company has a driving under the influence conviction, the chance of that company being caught committing fraud goes up by 25%. Leadership has an impact and, you know, whether it's intentional or not, the actions of leadership become the culture and the values of the organisation. Hope you've enjoyed that discussion today. Please do hit me up. I'd love feedback on it. You know, it's sort of getting into something that's as emotive as the policing and the culture of policing is obviously a highly tricky one. And that's why I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll happily give a platform to anyone who expresses something different or someone who takes something different from the discussion. Appreciate you listening. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 